Well, good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. I, I think this is the fourth year that I have come here. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, and we'll just keep uh, marching through slowly through the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, I think the first year, if I remember rightly, we, we spent the whole three sessions just on question one. And we could actually go back and do that again. That's such a rich uh, question. Uh, and I, I encouraged people to memorize it and so on. I, I think a few did. And, and you have young people in your church who are going through confirmation class. I, I think they sat in at one point for that. So, so that was fabulous. And then we, we went a little further in the Heidelberg Catechism. But last year, I stepped out of sequence because it was 2017 and it was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. So uh, the little series that I gave focused on uh, the doctrine of justification by faith were better from a reform point of view, the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. Uh, so by has to do with the divine side, what, what God gives and faith is the response by grace through faith from Ephesians 2, 9, I think. But in any case, uh, I thought I, I would try to go back and pick up the thread uh, in the Heidelberg Catechism. And uh, I don't know how many years more I'll be able to do it after this, but, but maybe God will grant us more years together. That, that would be nice. Actually, uh, as I see it now, I probably won't be able to come uh, next June because I'll be a visiting professor in Rome. Uh, I, I'll be at the pontifical... Uh, Gregorian University, a Jesuit university in Rome, uh, and they bring people in from other uh, churches than the Roman Catholic Church uh, to teach uh, how their tradition looks at the Lord's Supper. You know, so they're, they're quite ecumenical there, and I wrote a book uh, called The Eucharist and Ecumenism, and all they want me to do is teach my book to a, a group of young uh, up-and-coming Jesuit priests. So. That looks wonderful. My wife and I will get to go over there together. But that means I, I don't imagine that we'll be back in June. So uh, this, this will be it for a while. And you know, I, I you know, let, let's see. You know, I take the adventure that Aslan sends us, and, and so on. So uh, we'll we'll have to see what transpires. But uh, I, I thought uh, I would just pause. Uh, and look at a question that almost uh, is like a grace note in uh, the way the Heidelberg Catechism uh, is presented. But uh, if you look on page 21 in this book, if you have this book, uh, uh, Lord's Day 8, uh, questions uh, 24 and 25, uh, it's, a, it's a, an introduction now uh, into the Apostles' Creed. So uh, after the introductory material uh, that starts the catechism off, uh, in 23, the uh, Apostles' Creed is actually quoted. And uh, th then we get these two questions, 24 and 25. How are these articles divided and question 25, since there is but one God, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Uh, and the answer to these questions is puzzling or difficult uh, for many people. 
And so I, I thought I would say something today about the uh, Holy Trinity. And I, I imagine the way these things go, uh, it could take all three sessions. But you know, I'll play it by ear. Uh, I, I actually love the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, it, it, uh, it's one of the most difficult of all Christian doctrines. I, I'll say something about why I think it's difficult. But I think in the end, it's uh, one of the most beautiful of all Christian doctrines. So it's not just uh, an intellectual puzzle where you kind of knit your brow and wonder you know, how, how these claims can hold together that God is one and three at the same time. But, but let's look at the answers there. Uh, how are the articles divided? So the, the way into the doctrine of the Trinity is by reference to the Apostles' Creed. So it's, it's not really a standalone doctrine here. Uh, in the way it's presented uh, in, in the uh, Heidelberg Catechism. This is a way of, of getting it in. Uh, so the, the Apostles' Creed, it says, is divided into three parts. God the Father and our creation, God the Son and our deliverance, God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. And if you glance over at how they have formatted uh, the Apostles' Creed on the preceding page, you'll see that they have actually uh, lifted out those three elements as the leading sentences for each section. And the middle section is the one that has uh, uh, the, the, the most wording. You know, the God the Father is, is briefly presented, uh, a little more on the Holy Spirit, but not so much on the Holy Spirit as such. It goes right into the church and the communion of saints and, and so on. Uh, it, it's the, it's the, the part about Jesus Christ that is most fully developed. And that's been true in the history of the church. The, it's, it's been more focusing on the centrality of Christ and his saving work and significance than on God the Father or God the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if we can continue at some point, we'll, we'll go into God the Father and the creation and so on. But I, I wanted to pause and think about the Trinity and there's just one question, question 25, about the Trinity directly. So since there is but one God, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? So that gets out the basic problem, the basic perplexity, the one and the three. You've got one God, and uh, I'd like to say, and yet, uh, not just and, God is not just one and three, God is one and yet also three. I think that and yet brings out what I call the, the syntax of mystery, you know, the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity uh, and the Holy Trinity itself uh, is about a profound mystery, one of the profound mysteries of the Christian faith. If you ever have uh, any conversation with uh, someone from uh, Islam or someone from Judaism, you know, this is a great stumbling block. You know, it, it, looks, uh, it looks kind of absurd to them and, and to many others. Uh, you know, certainly in the uh, 17th century, you know, the great Isaac Newton, who I'll say just a little bit more about it later on, and John Locke, uh, they, they puzzled over, over this. It, it just seemed uh, uh, ancient and archaic uh, and impossible. So they ended up being more or less Unitarians, uh, what was called Socinianism in those days. But you know, John Locke 
locked himself away in his study with the New Testament, kind of a hyper-Protestant, you know, you know, highly individualistic, you know, you know a, 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 a solitary reader alone with the Bible, trying to figure out what it really meant. And what he came out with was a, a non-Trinitarian and to some extent anti-Trinitarian understanding of God. And it's quite a selective reading of the New Testament. And I think one of the things I like about Calvin is that he always keeps word and spirit together. It's not just word, it's not just the letter all by itself. The letter uh, needs the spirit to interpret the letter properly. And, and I, I would say from a Trinitarian standpoint that Newton and Locke just read the New Testament according to a different spirit. You know, they, they did not read it according to the spirit that guides uh, the historic Christian church and uh, that is embedded in the creeds of the church as in the Apostles' Creed here, or even more so, and well, I, I should have brought a copy of this, I'll, I'll bring one next time, even more so in what is called the Nicene Creed. You know, for some reason, Presbyterian churches and Reformed churches liturgically make much more use of the Apostles' Creed than the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. I, I had to work on having that trip uh, uh, easily off the tongue. Uh, uh, yeah, the Nicene Creed came out in, in two versions. There were, there were two councils over a period of time in which the Council of Constantinople supplemented the original Council of uh, Nicaea in the fourth century. But it, it took several centuries for the church to work through controversies. I, I mentioned the controversy that reemerged in the 17th century with Newton and Locke, but it was already difficult and uh, a point of contention in the earliest centuries. You know, how, to, how to understand this, this speaking, this discourse about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as describing the reality of God. So it, it's always been a stumbling block, still is for many today. And uh, there were, uh, it was an important council, the first great ecumenical council, the Council of Nicaea in 325. And uh, of course, these conciliar statements don't meet with uh, universal acclaim. You know, there's always dissenters to the one side or the other. But if there's any hope, for a future united church, as I think there has to be, you know, that we can finally overcome the, the divisions that separate Christians, and especially at uh, uh, the, the Lord's table, especially at communion. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a scandal of the witness of the church to the world. It doesn't show up so much perhaps in our country, but I know when the 19th century missionary movement went to other countries and so on, you know, people in India, for example, were puzzled, you know, what, what, what church should we join? You know, because there were, you know, how would you, how would you choose one over the other? And, and you may know there's a group in India called the Dalits. You know, many of them actually turned out to, to uh, convert to Christ. But uh, there was an argument that a Dalit leader made uh, that uh, Dalits should not become Christians because Dalits already were struggling with disunity in their ranks, and this would only make things worse if Dallas became Christians because it would institutionalize and, and reinforce the divisions that they were already struggling with. Well, I mean, the church is one, 
and actually cannot be divided. And yet we live in the midst of divided churches where uh, Christians exclude one another from participating in their Lord's Supper services. So this is a huge scale. It's why I wrote my book, you know, the one that's taking me to Rome, you know, my, my little drop in the ocean. Uh, uh, but uh, the Nicene Creed, which was where the doctrine of the Trinity really got formally established in the history of the church. I mean, it's in the New Testament, but there was controversy about how to interpret these things. So it, it came to the Nicene Creed, and the Nicene Creed was associated with the Eucharist or with the Lord's Supper. So if any of you may be familiar with uh, a, a liturgical tradition in one of the churches, the Episcopal Church, uh, or uh, I think the Lutheran Church, certainly the Roman Catholic Church and, and the Eastern Orthodox Churches, they say the Nicene Creed uh, prior to or as a part of their Lord's Supper service. And the Apostles' Creed, historically, you know, not anymore, but for the Reformed, you know, it's, it's different. But historically, the Apostles' Creed, which we're looking at here uh, in the uh, Heidelberg Catechism, that was associated with baptism. So uh, th there was a kind of a liturgical placement of the two great creeds. But I, I think it, it can be a kind of impoverishment for Presbyterians not to have more exposure to the Nicene Creed. It's, it's more difficult. Uh, you know, it causes more puzzles. You know, I'm going to go into what I think those puzzles are about. Uh, they're not really puzzles. In the end, there's a difference between a problem and a mystery. And I'll try to explain that. I mean, these are deep and glorious mysteries, mysteries of light having nothing to do with you know, problems where you knit your brow and, and try to solve it you know, as if it's a, a mathematical problem that has a solution. It's to be respected and adored. It, it's not to be solved. That's the difference between a problem and a mystery. Uh, but here we're, we're with the Apostles' Creed. And, of course, both creeds have this Trinitarian aspect to them. So, so we're looking at the doctrine of the Trinity as it is lifted up uh, in relation to the uh, Apostles' Creed, uh, the one that we're more familiar with as Presbyterians. And they ask the why question. Why do we have a doctrine of the Trinity? And I want to elaborate on that question. I, I, I want to, I want to uh, unpack that a little more. They give a, a really brief, you know, a correct answer. But um, there's much more to be said than the answer that they give us here. Why? Well, because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. These three distinct persons are one true eternal God. Well, I mean, that's, that's a very good benchmark. That's a very good guideline. You don't want to do anything to contradict that or go against it. But uh, it's really sketchy. You know, and you know, I can well imagine uh, somebody reading this and, and wanting more. You know, th th this is this is just a, a little morsel. You know, but there's actually a whole feast in here, and, and you might like to have more than just this appetizer or hors d'oeuvre. You know, why? Uh, because that is how God has revealed Himself in His Word. But it makes the uh, it uses the language of three distinct persons. So the word distinct is important there 
because, uh, as I will explain more fully, they're distinct but not separate. So, so this is part of the, the mystery of the Trinity, how, how there can be three distinct persons. What does person mean? Does person mean what we ordinarily mean when we, when we talk of persons? You know, if we push that too far, uh, it, would, it would go in the direction of three centers of consciousness. And that can't be right. That, that would move in the direction of separation. There are uh, recent theologians <clears throat> who have wanted to move in that direction, but I, I think that's problematic. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't retain the mystery if you push the distinction to the point of separation. So they have to be distinct. They have to have their own distinct identity. Whatever person means, we can almost put person in quotation marks once we're clear that it cannot possibly be three centers of consciousness, you know, contrary to Jürgen Moldmann or Karl Rahner's very distinguished theologians who I think get it wrong at this point. Uh, and one true eternal God, so that we have th three distinctions within the reality of the one true eternal God. And why? Well, the, the catechism tells us because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. Well, I mean, that's okay as far as it goes, but let's, let's try taking it a little farther. Uh, I think that what I'm about to say uh, could be taught to all Christians or any Christians, could be taught to young people. It, it, it's a kind of uh, uh, a, a worrisome side of things that more Christians don't have the kind of basic knowledge that I'm going to try uh, to present to you today. I mean, it, it, it's pretty straightforward, but it, it, it helps us to see more fully why we have this doctrine, which on the surface looks passing strange. And, you know, you get genius-level people like Newton and Locke. You know, I, I once visited the University of Cambridge and, and was in the college where Isaac Newton had, had been a professor, you know, the, they have a, a, a kind of a separate little alcove with a painting of Isaac. I mean, he, he's one of the great geniuses in, in the history of science, you know, of all time. And, and Newton couldn't make heads or tails of the doctrine of the Trinity and ended up being some sort of uh, Unitarian. I mean, they wanted to be faithful Christians, but they couldn't make any sense of the uh, doctrine of the Trinity. So th they didn't have what I'm about to try to suggest to you. Why do we have a doctrine of the Trinity? Uh, I think there are basically four reasons. First has to do with the Holy Scripture and especially with the New Testament. Now, this is difficult because although there are Trinitarian phrases uh, that we find in the New Testament, uh, as for example, uh, uh, in the last chapter, almost the last sentence in the Gospel of Matthew, go into all the world and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, so here's a Trinitarian formula that's really very early. You know, the Council of Nicaea was fourth century. This is still first century stuff. But it, it was also sketchy. 
you know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't explain what that means. It just puts it in there, but it, it's, it's a place to think from. And then uh, there's the famous benediction uh, that occurs at the end of 2 Corinthians, uh, 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 the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit you know, be with you all. So that's, that's a Trinitarian structure. But the, these are not yet quite a doctrine of the Trinity. It, it, it's still at the level of phrases that need to be thought through and unpacked. That, that's why it took at least until the fourth century in the Great Council of Nicaea before these things were kind of nailed down and false options were ruled out. Uh, so uh, to say that Holy Scripture is the foundation and the basis for uh, constructing a doctrine of the Trinity is correct, but you're not going to find a chapter and a verse in the New Testament where someone can say, go and read this chapter and you'll get the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, it's not there. It's implied all through the New Testament uh, with regard to it, and this is key now, with regard to Jesus Christ being more than merely a human being. Jesus Christ is not just truly human, he's also truly God. Now, there had to be another council later on, uh, more than 100 years later, called the Council of Chalcedon. And there they had to bring in the humanity of Christ and the relation between his humanity and his deity. That's a further mystery. That, that's the mystery of the incarnation. But at first, they just focused on the deity of Christ. So the, 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 the controversy uh, swarmed around the question of whether or in what sense Jesus could really be God. Could he really be God incarnate? Could he be God with us? But if Jesus actually is truly God in, in a strong sense, and not just kind of a weak metaphorical sense, if Jesus is truly God, then inevitably that does strange things to monotheism. I mean, the, the early church, you know, the historic church, does not want to reject monotheism. But this, this is something like you know, a pure beam of light uh, heading into a prism, and all of a sudden it breaks out into color. So it, it's still one beam of light, but all of a sudden you find out, uh, running it through the prism, that light has all these different colors uh, in there that you couldn't see before it hit the prism. So uh, the incarnation is something like monotheism hitting the prism. And then it comes out as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's really the deity of Christ that was thought to be important. And the Council of Nicaea uh, affirmed that Jesus, the, the Son, was just as fully God as God the Father. So nobody was doubting the deity of God the Father or of monotheism in, in some sense. But if, if Jesus is God, as the church believed, he had to be God in just the same sense as God the Father was God. So, so once you make that affirmation, then you have to figure out how to coordinate the affirmation of the deity of Jesus Christ, God with us in the flesh, with the historic revelation given to Israel that the Lord our God uh, is one. Hear, O Israel, you know, the, the, the great uh, 
uh, prayer uh, given to, to the Jewish people. You know, the, the Lord is one. So how to coordinate and, and make sense of the oneness of God with the, this new revelation after revelation hit the prism that Jesus is actually God with us in the flesh and that he's not identical with God the Father. So how, how, can, how can we work this out? You know, in the prologue to the Gospel of John, you know, the, the opening section, uh, it begins famously, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So I mean, eventually it's going to say that the Word became flesh, but it starts with the Word. So here you get a, a, a pattern of identity and difference. The Word was with God. That's some kind of distinction between God and the Word. Theos and, and Logos in the Greek. The, the Logos was Theos. And yet, the Logos was with God. So, so it introduces some kind of distinction. See, so already, that's that refraction. The, that's the, the, the single beam of light you know, hitting the prism. Well, we, we've got a distinction within God. You know, they're identical, but there's a difference. There's a distinction there. But by the end of the prologue to the Gospel of John, I have to be careful not to go off on too many digressions here. Uh, but I'll, I'll allow myself just a little one. Um, th there is something in uh, uh, literature, not just the New Testament, called a, a chiasm or a chiasmus, and that's related to the Greek word chi, that looks like an X. And th there's a literary pattern that uh, a simple one would be A, B, C, B prime, A prime. So it's not like a syllogism where you have a generalization, all human beings are mortal, then you have a particular case, Socrates is a human being, therefore Socrates is mortal. That, 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 that's a linear way of thinking that's familiar to us. Uh, th this way of organizing things according to a chiasm was quite common in the ancient world, uh, both in non-Christian literature and Christian literature. Appear all the time in Paul, big ones, little ones. This is a big one. You know, the whole prologue, I think, to the Gospel of John is structured according to a, a chiasm. You know, so, like, why is John the Baptist in there twice? You know, it's been a puzzle to people. It, the explanation, I think, is it, it's, it's because of a literary pattern. You know, it's sort of like D and D prime uh, in, in the way it works out. Uh, but I, I can't go off on that too much. But there's an A and an A prime. So A is the word was with God and the word was God. So this is already on the way toward Trinitarian thinking. It's early Trinitarian thinking. You could say proto Trinitarian. It's not yet a full-blown doctrine of the Trinity, but it's the seeds of the doctrine of the Trinity. But uh, what's the A prime? Well, it's no longer identity and difference. You know, it's, it's, the translation is tough. The English translations, you know, smooth it out and, and don't uh, uh, usually uncover the, the, the their, their textual problems even. But uh, the only begotten. Some, some translations will say the only begotten son, but it actually, it's what it means, but it, it, it's only, it only says monogenes, the only begotten in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. Uh, so that's A prime. So that, that corresponds to identity and difference at the beginning of the uh, uh, prologue to the Gospel of John. But you cannot say of the Father and the Son or of the only begotten 
and the Father, to be more closer to what the Greek actually says. You cannot say that the Father is the Son, or that the Son is the Father. I mean, that, that, that would be a mistake. So now we've got a distinction between the Father and the Son, and they have distinct identities, and yet they are somehow one. So it, it, this is, again, the seeds out of which a doctrine of the Trinity will arise. I'm giving examples of how early Trinitarian modes of thought show up in the New Testament without yet being a full-fledged doctrine, such, such as I'll try to unpack for you. But uh, here I think it, the difference between A and A prime is a different, if, if you kind of do an x-ray and look at the logical pattern underneath it, you know, the, the x-ray in A is identity and difference, but the x-ray in B, uh, A prime, is unity and distinction which is not quite the same. The, the, the Father and the Son are one, and yet they remain distinct. So th th these, these are the elements that eventually had to be incorporated into a fully worked out doctrine of the Trinity. So it, it, it's aspects of the New Testament witness like this that eventually led to a doctrine of the Trinity. And you cannot make sense of the New Testament with its witness to Jesus Christ as God with us with, without... Uh, finally being driven, you know, almost against your will, because uh, who wants it or who needs it, you know, uh, to uh, what we know as the doctrine of the Trinity. So the, the first reason, and th this, this is kind of, uh, uh, I, I, what I'm about to say, we'll unpack this a little more. I, I'm differentiating a little more than what the Heidelberg Catechism says here by what I'm about to go on to uh, say next, this is how God has revealed himself in his word. Okay, I, I, I want to uh, make a distinction between revelation and the word of God in, in a certain sense, you know, not in an absolute sense, but in a certain sense, because if Jesus is truly God, then he's not just a, a, a teacher. He, he, he's not just a prophet. You know, he, he, he doesn't stand in the, the ordinary succession of uh, uh, other human life or, or human beings. He, he's truly human, but he's also more than human because he's truly God, and no one else will ever be God incarnate. So that this gives him a kind of uniqueness. But in this uniqueness, Jesus not only reveals true ideas about God, he does that, but he doesn't only do that. He himself is God with us in the flesh. And this means that God will never be another God that God is revealed to be in Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is not only the revelation of truths about God, he is the self revelation of God. That, that this is who God is in person and not just abstract or, or uh, propositional ideas about God. I mean, I, I, I know true things about my wife, but, but my relationship to my wife is not just my relationship to a body of ideas 
about my wife. I, I have true knowledge of my wife, I hope. I, mean, I know, I know uh, who my wife is as a person, and that can't be separated from the ideas I have about my wife, and that I'm continually learning more you know, with each passing day and week, you know, always surprises and so on. But you know, personal knowledge is different from propositional knowledge. So Jesus is not just giving us true statements about God. It's an older way of thinking about revelation still around in some circles that, that revelation was primarily uh, ideas or propositions. And then there was a reaction against that uh, toward personal knowledge. And there were even then people who in reaction said it was personal knowledge, but not propositional knowledge. So they fell off the other side of the log. You know, I mean, it, it can't be either or. You, know, you, you can't know a person, I can't know my wife as a person without knowing a body of true ideas about her. Even I couldn't even give an exhaustive set of, of the true beliefs I might have about my wife. And they might come out in, in different contexts. I would discover that I did know certain things. But personal knowledge and propositional knowledge are different. And Jesus is the self-revelation of God. So God would not be present to us in a way that we could have true knowledge of God as a person apart from the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So I mean, he, he's not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher. This is God himself with us in the flesh. So Jesus, in his life and work and teaching, reveals to us who God is because Jesus is the self-revelation of God to us. You know, uh, I can't quote it very well from memory, but there's a famous passage in Matthew 11. You could look it up around Matthew 22, 11:22. No one knows the Father but the Son, and no one knows the Son but the Father, and those to whom the Father chooses to reveal him. See, this is about revelation, and it's not about propositional revelation primarily, it's, it's the Father revealing himself through the Son and the Son revealing the Father's person to us through, through his life uh, and ministry and so on, life, death, and resurrection. So if Jesus is not God with us, it undermines what the New Testament wants to say about revelation. So you know, the Heidelberg Catechism says, why? Why, why do we have this doctrine? Well, if he's, not, if he's not truly God, he's not the self-revelation of God, and the whole Christian understanding of revelation would fall away. You follow me? So there, there are the scriptural statements, some of which I, I touched on, that are not quite yet a doctrine. But then the, the whole understanding of revelation depends on Jesus being not just uh, merely human, but being God with us in a way that reveals the person of God, you know, the mercy and the grace and the love of God to us in the flesh. So uh, that's, that's another reason why we have to have a doctrine of the Trinity, because without a doctrine of the Trinity, Jesus is no longer uh, truly God. Uh, but it's more than that. Now, I, I could put this you know, pretty simply and then uh, explain it more fully uh, after that. If Jesus is not God incarnate, 
we're still in our sins. If he's going to be the savior of the world, and therefore our savior, he cannot be a mere human being. If he were a mere human being, he might need salvation himself, or let's say he actually was a sinless human being, that wouldn't make him God, it would just be, uh, he would be a perfect human being who wouldn't need salvation. But, but how, how would that salvation uh, be uh, uh, of relevance to anyone else? I mean, so even the, the best conceivable human being, who's, who's a human being and nothing but a human being, could not be the savior of the world. Uh, he has to be truly human also. That's why we had the Council of Chalcedon in 451, 125 years later. They had to work that out. But now, what was clear to them implicitly, I mean, this council that I'm talking about, this Council of Nicaea that produced the Nicene and then the, with, with amendments, the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, 325, 381. Uh, this council did not even have things quite as explicitly worked out as I'm presenting them to you here, but they did have it uh, in mind. And in the Nicene Creed, there is a phrase, maybe some of you know it, for us human beings and our salvation. So, so they knew that the doctrine of salvation was at stake. If Jesus is not truly God, then what the church believes about our salvation from sin and death could not be sustained. So Jesus is the savior because he's God incarnate and if he's not God incarnate, the doctrine of salvation as the church understands it collapses. So the, you, you won't find this on the surface of the New Testament either, that this is at the level of meditating or reflecting on the biblical witness. So I, I did a little reflection on revelation and now a little reflection on salvation. But uh, when, when those bishops gathered in, in a, you know, a little auditorium uh, uh, in 325, yeah, they, they actually were in a room uh, with an open Bible on the table in front of them. So I, I think they understood that what they're trying to do is understand the New Testament witness to Jesus Christ. So number one, Holy Scripture. And then certainly that if Jesus is not truly God, he would not be capable of saving us all from our sins. He would, he would be a, a human being and no mere human being could be the savior of the world. To have this kind of universal saving significance, he had to be more than merely human. He had to be fully and truly God. So see the, the, the Heidelberg doesn't quite tell us this in that little question. You know, it kind of runs scripture and revelation together and then goes on. Uh, but uh, it's important to see that uh, uh, you, you remember the Samaritan woman story, the woman at the well uh, uh, at the end of it in the Gospel of John, was that chapter four or something? She, she says, now we believe that you are the savior of the world. See, the, this is actually a way of affirming that Jesus is not merely human, although he is fully human, but he's also and primarily God with us for us and our salvation. So in order to deliver us from our sins, he has to have the power of God. He has to be God stepping in for us and taking our place and dying for us on the cross so that we can be delivered from sin and death. 
if he were human and nothing but human, uh, that doctrine of salvation could not be sustained. So he has to be fully God if he's to be the self-revelation of God and if he is to be the savior of the world. But there's a, a, a one more reason that's worth uh, uh, noting. And that's worship. The earliest Christian confession, just about, one other one, but the earliest Christian confession was Jesus is Lord. And this statement wasn't just an idea that Christians said to one another, you know, they meet each other in the street and shake hands and say, Jesus is Lord or something. No, th th this statement was in the context of worship. Th this was an acclamation, a word of praise. Uh, uh, we, we have the famous so-called hymn in Philippians, uh, God has highly exalted him, and every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow, uh, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is also a way of affirming the deity of Jesus Christ. He's given the name above every name. What name is that? I mean, that, that's not just rhetoric. He's given the name of the Lord. The name is a way of, in the Jewish scriptures of pointing to the reality of God. God and God's name uh, as a kind of identity and difference. You can't be uh, separated from one another. And now the divine name is given to Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven. What does that mean, heaven on earth and under the earth? Uh, it's kind of puzzling. Uh, you know, but it seems to me, even if you're under the earth, you're going to make this confession in one way or another to the glory of God the Father. But to say, this is a way of saying that Jesus, Jesus himself, has the status of Yahweh, of the Lord God of Israel. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Well, you can't know who God is, according to the scriptures, without worshiping God and without loving God. You, you can say, in God we trust all you want, you can put it on your currency and so on, but, that, that, but that, that's meaningless. Uh, unless it's coupled you know, with the triune God. What God is that? Is that the God that uh, is believed in? Or?